and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach, and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. Hey there, my wise friends, and welcome to season five of the Collective Wisdom podcast, which I'm recording on a beautiful autumn day here in the UK. We're kicking off this new season with a little bit of a difference because rather than having one or two guests this week, I have 16. Yep, I like a good challenge. Why the party? Well, because over the summer, I was lucky enough to be involved in a collaborative book project with a group of friends who are all members of an online community I'm part of called The Right Company, which was founded back in 2018 by Bernadette Dewar and Mark Dick to support freelancers, solopreneurs and business owners. So a few of us have been working together on that project and this week we're celebrating the launch of our book into the world. It's called Enough, Unlock a Life of Abundance Starting Right Where You Are and in it we share our own perspectives on how we've set about doing work that feels aligned with our values and gives us that sense of fulfilment whilst also leaving us with enough time and energy to focus on perhaps the other things in life that matter to us. In this book, we've shared our compelling stories where we distill all the advice and wisdom we've learned along the way. We share insights from failures, celebrate creativity with poetry, and ask some powerfully reflective questions that we've often asked ourselves. It's our hope that reading our stories will inspire you to reflect on your own answer to the question of what is enough and explore your own unique gifts and creative talents to focus your attention on what it is you really want to achieve in life. Perhaps finding the encouragement to taking steps towards building or rebuilding a life that is rich in every sense of the word. In short, we hope it's a call to action for how to use that propelling question of what is enough as a compass for living life on your terms. Like many creative projects, this one started as a simple spark of an idea that has quickly gathered momentum as the energy and enthusiasm everyone brought to it ignited. Jeremy and Ian had already published books, so were well aware that simply doing the writing was in fact the easy part. Then came the work of editing and crafting the different chapters into one cohesive body of work. It would need a title, a cover and a publisher. But that was when the real magic of working together started to happen. There were calls to support each other in the writing. For some, myself definitely included, this was when the imposter really set in. And we hired a professional editor, Siobhan Curram. Big shout out to Siobhan, who gave us so much invaluable guidance and encouragement. There was a team assembled to take care of marketing and launching the book. Kim and Joel have worked on a website. Ula has designed the beautiful cover art. And everyone started to bring their skills to the fore to take this project forward. Is it perfect? Probably not. Every time I reread my chapter, I find something else that could be edited out or improved on, but it's definitely good enough. And I couldn't be more proud of this little team. It's been such a lot of fun to work together alongside these kind, generous hearted people. And it's been a truly collaborative process that really demonstrates for me the power of the collective. 
So this is an episode to share with you a little taste of all the people who have taken part in this super fun project. We come from a variety of different backgrounds from all across the globe. And what's connected us is a shared vision for creating our own path towards work that feels fulfilling and plays to our real strengths and unique gifts. And the really exciting part is that this book has its very own website at enoughthebook.co. So if after listening to this, you'd like to read it, you can head over there and buy the ebook, which is available now, or you can sign up to pre-order a hard copy, which is due to be published later this month. As 2021 is rounding to a close, there couldn't be a better time to give yourself the gift of reflection about the year ahead and your hopes and dreams for what you want to do with your time. And we hope this book will inspire you to do just that. So now it's time to hear a bit more from each of the lovely people involved in making it happen. And this is only a tiny taste. And believe me, when I say editing this down was really hard as each conversation was so full of wisdom. But fear not, I'll be digging deeper with some of these amazing people in future episodes. And some you may even recognize from, from their own previous episodes. We'll start by hearing from Bernadette Dewa, talking about her motivation to start the right company in the first place, which is what brought us all together and how she came to understand through her own personal experience, the power of stories to connect and the importance of making a start without necessarily knowing just how things will turn out. Well, to, to be honest, when I started writing in my mid 40s, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand that I was sharing everyday stories with people on the blog and that that's what people were connecting to. And it, it, it you know, it took me quite some time to recognize that people were responding to stories from my life. They, they weren't, I would anchor and I would want to share an idea with my audience and my readers and I would anchor that with a small story that seemed to me just like the most natural ordinary way to communicate because I guess I was raised in Ireland in Dublin the storytelling capital of the world and stories are just how we communicate there and as ever Bernadette has some amazing wisdom to share about what she saw coming out of this process of us all working together what I loved about seeing you all working together was the collective energy and the enoughness in the collective energy, because you weren't just leaning on one person's strength. Everybody has individual strengths and collectively you just produced something that was wonderful. And I don't believe as individuals, you could have done that. You would have had a very different book. The other person we really have to thank for bringing us all together is Mark Dick. He works tirelessly within the Bright Company community to really be the glue that keeps us all held together. And it wouldn't be the same without him. He was kind enough to agree to writing the foreword for this book. And as with everything he does, he brought his wry humor and gentle, encouraging spirit with him to that job. So my name is Mark Deck, and uh, I'm uh, along with my friend Bernadette Jiwa, started the the right company in 2018 and I, I will admit right up front it was bernadette's idea <laughs> to do this <laughs> but we we've been friends for many years and and she asked me to to come and help her launch it and and sort of run the the community whatever whatever that means and, and in the early days so we started in 2018 and and we started because bernadette uh, had a very successful blog 
And a lot of people read that blog and were reaching out to her and she was talking back and forth with folks. And she thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a place where uh, people can come and we can keep company, keep good company because, you know, good people read her blog. Come on, good people. Let's let's come together and and work together and work on our businesses and work on ourselves together. You know, the we both believe that if you build something with intention, if you build a business with a purpose that matches your purpose, it it's something that's more sustainable and something that gives you joy and is ultimately more successful. And so that was sort of the angle that we took. And it was so heartening for him to be able to reflect on just how much that work has paid off. Yeah, I don't know. I was I was never prouder of the 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 right company and 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 pride is the wrong word but i was uh, but it's that's all I, the only word i can say i was just like i was just so grateful for the right company to, to see this thing go and to see everyone see everyone being so happy was awesome to me yeah, it was just awesome next we're going to hear from our fearless leader jeremy without whose structure and guidance and putting in of deadlines, gentle, supportive encouragement, I think it's fair to say we wouldn't be here talking about this book today. I think I also speak on behalf of the entire team when I say how grateful we are to him for putting all those structures in place and for keeping things moving forward. My name is Jeremy Deeds. I live and work in uh, Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. And I run a personal development business called Projects of Fire Limited. And really what I do is I provide personal coaching, but mainly what I do is I run something called the Crazy for Change program, which is to support those who live a life that's not fulfilled um, and uh, help them become change makers. My philosophy is really that to lead a fulfilled life and a meaningful life, the way to do that is by helping others to lead their own fulfilled and meaningful lives to make a difference in the world. Jeremy's opening chapter is called On the Threshold, and in it he talks about the impetus for writing this book that came about from understanding that there are a lot of people who are perhaps, as a result of the changes in the circumstances arising from the pandemic, questioning the status quo and searching for new ways to live and work. He describes life as being a series of thresholds, some of our choosing and others that might be foisted upon us by an illness or a job loss or even the loss of a loved one. Choices we make when we arrive at these liminal points in our lives can often be quite pivotal. And I discovered where the word threshold came from when I went to visit our little um, village museum just up the road here. And there's an old, uh, they reconstructed an old house there and it's got two doorways in it. And what, what the, the, used, the farmers used to do when they got the grain in was they'd open both doors so breeze blew through and they'd beat the grain at one door and the wind would blow the chaff out through the other door and leave the grain on the threshold, hence the word threshold. Mm. And it's all about um, thresholds are now a, a metaphor, if you want, for change, for going somewhere new, uh, and they take you into a different world. Um, and you can link this with the whole concept of personal development, travel as well. And by travel, I don't just mean going off in, into a new country or a different country, but even opening a book and, and uh, takes you into a new world, you cross that threshold and you don't really know what effect it's going to have on you. It could be major, it could be minor. He also describes one such threshold in his own life and how fear in the form of resistance came up and how this is a very common experience. We often resist the things that 
can provide the greatest opportunities in our life. Going back to my my um, my, my uh, meeting with George Kinder, you know, he he had a he ran a two day um, uh, a two day course uh, in Worcestershire called the Seven Stages of Money Maturity, and he came all the way over from the states to run it. And I, I'd heard about it, and I wasn't particularly interested because it didn't strike me as being anything that would do anything for me. And uh, but I talked to one of the guys who who is organising it, and he said, "Well." You know, just come along. You you'll be surprised. So so I did, and um, that was quite quite scary because I wasn't, didn't want to be there. I was with people who I knew vaguely, but I, I knew they had a very different way of looking at life than I did. And I was going into a completely new sort of arena, um, and it was scary. I didn't really want to be there. And I remember after the first session, I think, oh, do I really want to be there? I think I just should walk out. Um, but actually didn't stayed <laughs> and um uh, you know had had an amazing impact on my life so the whole concept of 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 being of liminal being um a threshold being, being crossing the threshold is is important and there's no doubt it can be really scary and fear is one of the big things that stops us going any further and mm. and, and so i think with this book you'll find that when you read it about what is enough, but you'll also, I hope, be inspired by those who have crossed the threshold, often many times, and often in deeply moving ways. Next up, we have Kim LeClaire, who not only built our fabulous website for the book, but through her business, East Willow, Kim spends her time helping freelancers and aspiring entrepreneurs to build an online presence that reflects who they are and what they want to contribute to the world. And boy, does she do a good job of it. Never one for a traditional path, Kim has arrived at her current setup via a corporate career in the healthcare sector, and I'd like to think it's her master's in clinical psychology that gives Kim that inside edge on understanding what makes people tick. In her chapter, Great Quests Don't Come With Maps, she brilliantly shares how her experience of going out as a freelancer 10 years ago has taught her the three C's of clarity, confidence and consistency that will help you to define and arrive at making that all-important contribution you seek to make in the world. Here she describes a little more about her own path to the creative freedom she was yearning for. It should also be said that Kim writes beautiful poetry, having set herself the challenge during one of the lockdowns of writing a poem every day. I'm happy to say that some of her poems have also made it into the book. I am Kim LeClaire. I am a freelance web designer and I live in Wheaton, Illinois, which is outside of Chicago. You know, I, I had a job job and it was a terrible fit for me. I worked in healthcare IT. You know, I, I just, at the time I used to say, I want to do something more creative. And I had played around with websites and that was, you know, WordPress was just coming into its own so yeah, I braved it. I, I I think I say in the chapter, I don't know what, it was a little bit reckless in some ways, but I quit my job and started designing websites. So yeah, I, I, I think in the long run, what I know now is that I'm someone who really likes a lot of autonomy. And so the ability to set my own schedule and yeah, I guess make my own decisions is, uh, it's important to me. It's a value ultimately. So this lets me do that. Whereas a job job doesn't quite so much. I, I suppose at some level, right. I must've had some sense of trusting that I could do it, figure most things out. Right. 
what I loved about your chapter was it, it is so well structured to help, you know, you have had these touchstones and you, and you, you talk about a quest as if it is a journey that you're taking the reader on and you go past clarity, confidence and consistency. And those are the three things that if you, if you just keep referring back to them, will keep you on the straight and narrow. I, most of my work is done with people that are just starting out. And so I see all the time how when people start, and when I say start, I generally mean they're starting their own little enterprise. They're going to share their work with the world. They don't know a lot, not because they can't know it, but they just haven't known it yet. I mean, it's just learning. So you learn how to be more clear with yourself, with other people. You learn to be more confident by doing stuff. And of course, the big is consistency because you see this all the time. People keep changing directions. When I, my joke is, I mean, I've been doing this almost 10 years. I kind of, I say I'm just sort of in the ether now. People know me as a web designer. That makes a huge difference. It takes time to establish that. Yeah. I, I don't do any, really any kind of marketing. I'm just doing my thing and it just, I have a friend who used to say, we can't pretend ourselves past our own evolution. And I think that's true. And it can happen because you can start and you can think, okay, I should know everything. But the truth is you just don't. That's okay. Yeah. You just need to know enough to take the next step, right? Yeah. Tweak, listen, don't just mindlessly walk into the darkness, but yeah, yeah. keep going. From Illinois, we moved to a beautiful corner of southwest Wales in the UK, which is home to Sue Hetherington. Sue is the author of Quiet Disruptors, Creating Change Without Shouting, which outlines a more collaborative way of working together for the quiet change makers in the world. She joined me to talk a little bit more about her creative process. I'm Sue Hetherington, and I live in a beautiful little valley Hidden Valley in Southwest Wales. It's astonishingly beautiful and it's the inspiration for all that I do. So what do I do? I'm a, I'm a writer and I'm a host of Waterside Conversations where I create, design and create the space for teams, groups, partnerships to have the kind of conversation they wouldn't normally have, but which they need in order to see their way forward in what is a really uncertain world where the way we thought things were, those rules don't exist anymore. That's amazing. And those conversations, I'm sure, are incredibly powerful. Now, I'm feeling very rejoiceful. That's the word. I am just rejoicing in the fact that we have your contribution because what you put out into the world are what you call daily pause points. They mm. are small poems, maybe passages. And in the introduction to your pieces, it says, you offer fresh sight from the quiet edge. And you believe that our words shape our reality. So I was just intrigued to hear from you where you get your inspiration for these little passages, which are so beautiful. Mm, mm. I started writing these passages um, three years ago. And when I started, I made a commitment to myself. It had three parts to it. One was that I wanted to write something that was inspiring, 
and encouraging. It was also a bit provocative. So it, it didn't give all the answers. It it put a little seed out there and just caused people to do, oh, oh, and maybe, maybe come back to it later in the day as their thoughts unfolded. So I didn't want it to be long. I wanted it to be short enough that someone could read sitting with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. I also wanted it to be something that that fed their inner being, not just their minds. And therefore, there is um, a photograph that accompanies every short piece. Uh, And that photograph is taken somewhere in the valley on my smartphone, I have to say. (laughs) But they are beautiful. uh, They they are are beautiful. Yeah. But the other two things I, I made as a commitment in the writing was that they would always be in the here and now, so I wouldn't write a whole load in advance and set them up. They are written. What's, what's real now? So that I wouldn't get into some kind of, I don't know, postulating at a distance, but you know, something that's, that's in reality. And secondly, that I would never write anything that wasn't real for me. So as the time's gone on, you know, I guess, I guess as people have picked this up, they've also walked my journey of the last three years because everything that's there, nothing, nothing is written just as theory. That's so that so was my other. Co- and I think that's maybe that's why, that may be why people who have found these little pause points to be really helpful for them keep coming back. So digging back into that process, do you take yourself for a walk every morning? Is that how it works? It varies. <laughs> Sometimes I write them in the middle of the night. When, oh my goodness! Oh my when goodness. when I've got when I've got a, a thought running round and I'm musing on something and I'm not sleeping, so I do actually have a notebook and pen by my side of the bed because I've now given up trying to remember what it was I thought the next morning. But often it, it's because I'm out walking in the valley. Uh, it's a uh, it is a beautiful place and we've got lots of green walks around the lakeside and up the valley and in the woods. And I've got places where I'll stop and just pause myself. But interestingly, the I rarely find I have inspiration when I'm static. If I need to get hold of something or to frame something or to create something, it's as I'm walking. And it's also the process of movement, which, yeah. is, which is why I think that this practice of reflecting as you're walking isn't isn't just for these beautiful places that some of us have an enormous privilege to live in it's it's actually for anyone everywhere and even when in previous years when i lived in cities actually it would be walking that actually got my my thinking flowing um and in fact there's a phrase that was coined by augustine of hippo which is um, solvitur ambulando, which translates, it is solved by walking. And there is quite a profound practice where, where we think we get stuck with something, actually just, just moving, just walking, even if it's just walking around the house. And that really encapsulates so beautifully a lot of what this book is trying to achieve, mm. which is why, you know, we describe your, your little interludes as gifts. And they really are. And they just help form a thread, a continuum, if you like, throughout the book. Seasoning that, that just lifts everything so beautifully. It does. And it, that is 
because we can see the book as a whole rather yeah. than we're just looking at the parts. And it's when you see the whole and you see the interconnections. So you see that the world is so much more an inviting place. And here she reads just one of those interludes for us. We are not lost. We are not lost. We just need to pause. Put away our old maps. See where we are with fresh eyes. Hear the sound of the world with open ears. And make a new path together. And talking of making a new path together, that's exactly what Jackie Landerman explores in her chapter, Enough with the Rules. Jackie works for a small finance company in Auckland and has found that leaning into her own values of empathy and compassion in her role rather than applying a set of rules or regulations and then having to justify them has brought a lot more of a sense of fulfillment to her work. When I first started lending, I was really nervous and really cautious. In fact, I would describe myself as a terrible lender. Um, And so it wasn't really until I did Bernadette's course that I started to understand that I needed to understand my customer's perspective rather than the lending side perspective. And when I sort of understood what it was like to walk in her shoes, it became more and more apparent that I, I needed to shift my focus into how can I be more helpful to her and how can I solve the problems that she's coming to me with today. And so really it was about sort of the rules part were the bit where I got to stand on, this is the reason I can't lend to you or this is the reason I can lend to you, um, to a point where, okay, what does she need today and how can I help her? And also with the least amount of resistance because what I found was when I was standing on the rules, there was also this high element of justifying those rules that created this tension between her and me. So, yeah, for me it was just finding this place of... um, joy in my work that I hadn't had before. I mean, before I would come home from work and and I call it a work hangover and you get home and you just feel a bit bad about yourself from the, you know, consciously you kind of go, well, I could have handled that better. I should have said that differently. But then also at the same time, leaning on those rules and justifying why you did what you did. That resonates so much with me that, so being able to somehow build a little bit of flexibility and and really start to have some empathy for the person on the other side of the, here's what I need today, especially when money's concerned, because it can often bring in feelings of shame or failure, perhaps if, if business isn't as successful as it should be, or, or was projected to be in that moment. And you're able to at least listen to the story. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, you know, selling money is is what lending is, I, I guess. So it's a different product than what other people are, are dealing with. And, in, and absolutely, there's this vulnerability. People lend money for a reason. It's not like I feel like a cup of coffee. You don't feel like a loan. You need a loan. Yeah. So it's it's really is really connecting with the fact that there is there is vulnerability in that position and people, yeah, need to be you know, cared for and walk through that. And what it sounds like is you're able, by being that little bit more flexible with the rules, you're able to bring your own values of kindness and just that little bit of understanding to someone who's in a vulnerable position. And that's what actually elevates you to feeling more fulfilled in your work. 
Would you say that's true? Oh, totally. And I think, you know, my whole life I've been looking for meaning and purpose in my work and thought it was in the job description or the or the company that I work for, or the type of company I work for. And it's been really fascinating for me to get to this point and to be able to say, I truly love my job. And I work in finance. I'm not saving planet. I don't work for Greenpeace. I'm not doing something meaningful in what I thought would get me to that point. So it's just that sort of, yeah, place of realizing that the joy in your work comes in how you serve people and how you, you know, show up to do that. Our next contributor, I think it's fair to say, likes to inject a bit of fun into the proceedings. Caroline Harvey is not only a talented wordsmith and lover of language, but she spends her time coaching others in the art of public speaking, that elusive skill that brings up a degree of fear and trepidation in the best of us. Here she tells us a little bit more about herself. Absolutely. Um, I'm a public speaking coach and trainer. I'm based in Barcelona, but I've, I started off my journey, if you like, in, in Wales. I grew up in a, in a little village near Cardiff, and I really think that's shaped uh, where I am today because Wales, as you probably know, is known as the land of song. Um, and I think that, that for me, language and voice have always been really important. So the fact that today I'm helping people to find their voice through their public speaking, through making their business presentations, um, I think is, is interesting. So it's part of my story and it's also how I can help people today to, to make better presentations and to feel better about making them. Her chapter, It All Started With A Red Nose, tells the story of how she came to this career, having overcome her own inhibitions and fear by learning to be a clown. Here she shares how she encourages her clients to harness the superpower of being themselves and bringing their presence to the stage. It's a chapter instilled with so much wisdom around how to approach overcoming fear of public speaking. So um, when I, I decided, um, yes, quite a few years ago now, to take part in a clown workshop um, here or near, near where I live, and it was an incredibly, what's the word, it was revelatory in that the first thing we were asked to do was to do an exercise, which we simply stepped onto the stage and, we were, and the teacher said, just be. Just be in front of your audience and see what emerges. And I can tell you, but <laughs> I stepped onto the stage, even with my red nose, and I couldn't even look at the audience. I was so petrified. And, and you know, if I could have just done a, you know, a Harry Potter flu powder or jumped into some sort of portal to get out of there, I would have done so. So that was my first experience of <gasps> a real stage fright and realizing how debilitating or limiting that can be. And what happened during the process of those, those several weeks of, of workshop was wearing that red nose was like a release in some way because it helps you doing clowning. I don't know if you've ever done any cat, but no. um, <laughs> it connects you to your inner child. It's like a portal to this playful self that we have, we all have inside us. But that as we, as we become adults and as we start to lead more and more responsible lives, we lose sight of that playful side you know the, the more innocent the, the more chaotic anarchic um and so it was just a revelation it was something which first connected me to something other than the good girl responsible adult uh, doing everything well and right and trying her best and thing so that was my first uh, experience of finding my voice so it's so true that you know we all have this innate fear it's 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 the thing that most people would cite as being their their biggest fear is public speaking standing up on a stage yeah. do you have any insight from all the years you've been working with clients as to 
what's behind that? Yes. In fact, it's something I work on in, in workshops and coaching sessions with my clients, because as you say, it's sort of on, on that list of you know some of the most stressful things we can do in our lives are speaking public. And I so I looked into it and I, I realized that um, what I what I found was that if you're standing on your own with lots of different pairs of eyes on you, it takes us back to that, you know, that time when our ancestors were hunting and gathering. And if you're on your own in a, in a wide open space, it could only mean one thing that you were about to be gobbled up by some some predators. And yeah, so what it does is triggers that fight, flight or freeze response. And therefore it's biological and we can't do anything about it. All we can do is acknowledge it and accept that we will have that, you know, the, the butterflies or worse and embrace that as a, you know, this, the adrenaline is there for a reason and try and transform it into something positive into um, there's, I think there's a fine line between fear and uh, the, the, the nerves we feel and excitement. So I, I, when I, I work with clients, I try to show them that feeling nervous is totally normal. Just let the adrenaline do its work, just be with it and turn to your audience because the spotlight is on your audience, it's not actually on us. The, the idea that we move our audience from one place to another. So by the time they, we finish speaking, they have changed in some way they've moved on in some way and that we are responsible for that as, as speakers but it all of that for me comes down to one main thing and that is this idea of presence that that we are present in front of our audience we are present like being in that space enables us to connect with ourselves and at the end of the day it's it's by bringing ourselves a whole person to the public speaking situation that enables that that connection. So it's about feeling that inner confidence and believing in our abilities. Believing in our own abilities is something that Pete Michaels struggled with when he first set out as a freelancer. But eventually, through a process of trial and error and using what wasn't working as a way of propelling himself towards what felt more aligned, he's arrived at a place where he's built a business on his own terms. Pete is now based in Germany and runs Rock and Roll Copy, where he works with growing businesses to help them better communicate their unique value to the right clients. As a copywriter, Pete has definitely found his voice and his chapter, a question of perspective, which is funny and slightly self-deprecating, charts his path to where he is today. Pete joined me to tell us a bit more about that journey. I graduated and went into, tried to kind of create a career for myself in photography initially, in, in music photography. That was something that I pursued. That took me from my university town down to London. And that was sense, that was actually a sort of an early and slightly failed um, attempt at entrepreneurship initially. And it was a very different thing to what I ended up doing, but it was more based on, you know, a kind of a passion and a want to contribute to a different kind of art and a different industry. And then after that, I just, because it didn't work out, I just drifted into doing jobs that weren't really me, but that, you know, I needed to, to yeah, pay the bills pay and the to bills. live, et cetera. Yeah. So I, I guess some of them led, some of them were marketing based and that led me to have at least an interest in the impact that written communication can have in mm. a business setting and also in a, in a, you know, just on its basic role of uh, communicating information from one person to another. That's essentially what good copywriting should be. It shouldn't feel like this is a business mission. This should be something should feel like it's, you know, the, the, 
the author uh, is speaking to you, the reader, directly. So there was some early interest in that there. But I think also, yeah, perhaps perhaps the fact that I was dissatisfied enough with the work that I was doing led me to seek, led me to try to find something else. And it was a bit of a higgledy-piggledy way of finding my way to doing what I was doing. And in the end, probably the biggest influence upon what I was doing was the fact that I had an, an old friend, an old school friend who was in the copywriting world, in the direct response copywriting world specifically. And he talked to me one day about it. And I just kind of thought, well, this sounds, this sounds fun. I'll give it a try when I was just looking around for something to do. I wanted to find a way to, to do writing more for a living or to at least incorporate writing more in, in what I do. And uh, eventually, and it took me a long time to commit to it, but eventually that yeah, was the path that I chose. And even if it's not ended up being the path, you know, the same path that I'm on right now, it's, that's kind of how I got into it. So yeah, it was a kind of a culmination of various different failures and left turns when I was expecting, yeah. you know, unexpected turns and uh, yeah, and a couple of influential people as well. But yeah, I just found after a while that there was just so many, so many wrong turns. Eventually it's just a case of thinking, well, I went down that road before and it was rubbish. So I'm just not going to drive down there. So what does that leave? Okay. That leaves over here, you know, and if you just keep bouncing around between, yeah, just and, and doing client work and doing, building your own kind of service business. A lot of that, I think, comes out of just figuring out who you don't want to work with or the type of projects that you don't want to do. It doesn't necessarily have to be a personal thing about like a type of client, but certainly about the type of work that you want to do. It's just, it can often be an easier place to start from to rule things out first. I mean, if you know exactly what you want to do, by all means, go and do it. But I, I didn't. And I even had very helpful mentors and you know, like paid business relationships that I engaged very smart people to work with me to help me try to figure this out at different stages of my career. And often some of sometimes their advice was to find to find a niche, you know, to find a more specific kind of industry or perhaps format for the work that I wanted to do. And I often gave it some real thought because I, I could see the practicality in it and I could see the evidence and see other people who had made that work really well. And it just didn't really work with me. Just, you know, I wanted to kind of define the work that I did by a different by different parameters and, and it made it harder. You know, I think one of the people that I worked with, I said, look, you know, I don't really think that I can do this. And they said, that's okay, but just be aware that it will make it harder for you. And I said, okay. And then I kicked myself <laughs> about six months down the line for, for taking the hard route, but that's how it is. And I, I love uh, your whole, throughout the theme, you know, it's, it's, it's funny and having fun along the way is one of the other things that, you know, you, you really yeah. have that as a sort of essential through line almost to it's got to be fun. <laughs> it should be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the thing is, though, some of that comes out of realizing when you're not having fun. I mean, I've done a lot of work in the past that hasn't been fun. And I came quite late to the work that I do anyway. So I've only really been doing it for the kind of the past decade. And I'm 43 now. So I came to it in my early 30s. And people will come to careers later, but a lot of people will come to careers earlier. And during that, I mean, before that time, and even after that time, there were time, there were periods of time when I thought like, I'm not having any fun doing what I'm doing. But I was kind of overlooking the smaller kind of laughs that happened, mm -hmm. you know, during, mm -hmm. during the actually do, actual doing of the work, even if those weren't particularly impactful <laughs> on the end result. An old school salesperson would tell you that don't let humor get in the way of a sale, you know, that's, yeah. especially if you're doing it on behalf of a client, it's, um, that's not, that's not what you should be doing. So humor is a very important part of life for me as it is for everybody. And I enjoy kind of writing with humor and purpose in different areas, but in, and, and so I kind of, I did enjoy actually doing this chapter for the right company book, but enough 
because I was able to kind of just sit back and recall some of the funnier things that happened to me or things that had inspired me to come up with, you know, what was in the chapter. And I've been doing that a little bit recently as well for a, for a personal project, which is more focused on the fun that I've had and the funny things that I've seen. I think I'm more grateful for the fact that I work in somewhat of an amusing industry. Yeah, <laughs> I, think the big, yeah. I think for a while it was difficult to, it can be difficult to acknowledge what's funny about the industry that you're in because it feels like you're not taking it seriously. But then I realized that actually sometimes that helps. <laughs> you can take yourself too seriously in this kind of world, yeah. especially when it comes to, when it comes to the self-betterment, you know, <laughs> there's a lot about it that is just inherently amusing and oh, you have absolutely. to kind of go about it in a way that doesn't, you know, always punch up, right? That's the kind of the rule of good comedy is like, always punch up. Don't be making fun of people. They're up here making a fool of themselves, you know, just Absolutely. always kind of punch up and, and just, just be kind with it. But so mm -hmm. I've kind of just recently come around to that and started documenting that for myself. And I think the fact that I wrote this chapter during that period of time has made me realize that, um, yeah, there is a lot of good humor to be drawn upon for, for this experience that I've had in this, in this world, in this industry. From Rock and Roll Copy to Don't Die With Your Music Inside You, which is the title of Ian Berry's chapter and is all about how to find your music or your essence, that unique blend of gifts and talents that you have to share with the world. Ian's a seasoned writer and author of Heart Leadership, Become the Wise Leader You Want to Be. And in his chapter, he asks some powerful questions that will help you to explore your own unique blend of gifts and talents. He tells the story of being diagnosed with a life-threatening melanoma when he was in his 20s and how his doctor at the time taught him to embrace life. Ian has been such a dedicated and generous member of the Wright Company community. And even though he's been facing considerable health issues lately, that melanoma has been something he's had to contend with ever since it was first diagnosed. He continues to show up and lend his contagious enthusiasm to the team. We're really grateful to have him as such a wise mentor. I'm Ian Berry. I've been a business mentor for the past 30 plus years. I, I began in 1990 after having a corporate career before that. I actually began mentoring as a part of my corporate role. And I liked that, doing that more than my, the, rest, the rest of my role. And so um, I eventually, you know, I, I think I started mentoring in 1985 and I left the corporate world in 1990 to begin my own practice. And I'm still, I'm still going. I've um, I've had melanoma for 45 years and I'm, I've got a few challenges at the moment, but I'm, I'm sure I'll overcome them. But when I first, I had to have a major operation and this is what I write about. My doctor came to me after the success of the operation, which was a blessing because only one in, one in five people survived that operation in those days. And he said to Carol, my wife and I, don't die with your music locked in. I mean, it, 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 was, it wasn't a magical moment when he said it because Carol and I had no idea what he was talking about. And then, of course, we, you know, we did our own research and we discovered that music is, is a wonderful metaphor for gift or talent or song or anything that you want to name. I, I lo love the word essence. I mean, Covey called it voice, which I also like. But to me, this essence, which is our unique personal wisdom, you know, we're, we're all one of a kind human beings and we have wisdom within us that, that only we have. And so from about, you know, when I, I just, you know, I played with this in my corporate career and then I, you know, since 1990, I really dedicated my, my life and my work to helping people to, first of all, see, but also unearth, but then to magnify and enhance their essence or, or their music. 
As with Ian, our next contributor, Darcy Lee, tells the story of a health issue that, although was hugely challenging at the time, nevertheless led to a new beginning for her in business. It's a theme that definitely reoccurs throughout the book, but sometimes it's from our darkest moments or toughest challenges that we find the resilience to carry on and that ultimately makes us stronger. Darcy has a love of community and that really shines through in the work that she does, but also in the way that she shows up at the right company. My name is Darcy, my last name is Lee, and I reside in San Francisco, California. I am a city girl. I've spent my adult life in New York City and in uh, San Francisco. And I now have an online store where I sell gifts. I used to have a brick and mortar. I was stumped. I was like, what am I going to talk about? So I asked uh, my therapist, who is now a friend. I've been going to her for so many years. And I said, what would you suggest? And she said, Darcy, come on, tell the story of how you broke and then had a vision for what you actually wanted to do with your life. And it's a compelling story. So I did. I wrote it. That And it, that it really day. is a compelling story. And it's a story about, you know, not recognizing hormonal imbalance creeping into your life and the the anxiety and sort of almost depression-like symptoms that came about as a result. Yeah, that it was physiological and not me was such a huge revelation. But of course, when you're trying to figure out what's going on with you physically, you don't get a diagnosis until you've been through all the hard parts. And that journey was really hard because I had no idea what was going on. I think a turning point in the story is someone called me out of the blue and said, I know of someone who treats people with instant onset anxiety and she's in Aspen, Colorado. And I wasn't going out of my house. I was sort of, I had gotten into this like fear or agoraphobic phase. And I said, who is she? And I called her and she assured me she could help me that it's not uncommon for women in their early forties to have an, a spell like this. Mm. So as soon as I saw her, it was a three day session I had to spend with her and she started to give me these supplements. I started to feel better. Like as quickly as I went down, I started to come back and she did extent. She worked with a doctor and she did extensive uh, hormone testing on me and said, yeah, this is what's going on. If we bring your progesterone up, you'll feel better. So I instantly started to feel better. And in that feeling better, I started to work with my therapist and she said, okay, we've had this. You're starting to get better. What do you want? Yeah. And I said, I don't want to work manufacturing home goods anymore, which is, I was a designer. I want to have a, a storefront and I want to sell things I make, but I want to deal with the public. I want to be a community center. She was like, okay, you could do that. And then like three months later, a storefront in my neighborhood in San Francisco came up for sale. And I signed a lease with her landlord and bought the business from her. And the rest is history. I had that store 20 years. And here she tells a story about how we can never truly know the impact that the work we're doing has on the people around us and the communities we're building. They stood at the counter and I asked them if I could help them, if they had questions, but kindly, not like I was trying to sell them stuff. And they said, I could feel her take a breath. The mom spoke, she spoke really quietly. And she said her son had been killed in a skiing accident 
three weeks before and this was his favorite place in the neighborhood and they just wanted to soak it in. And they thanked me and we all welled up with tears, the four of us. Mm -hmm. And it was a moment in time that changed that rhetoric for me, that changed that giving myself a hard time that it was just a store. We all have our own paths and we have no idea the impact. No, And I, I love that this all ties into the actual name of the store in the first place, which <laughs> I'll leave it to you to say. <laughs> it was called Heartfelt. Heartfelt is certainly something that rings true in so many of the chapters in this book. Listening to your heart and using it as a powerful compass, perhaps. Joel Hughes is certainly someone who leads from the heart and his chapter, Learning to Change, is all about humility. Learning from mistakes and understanding the importance of making tough decisions about who you serve and bringing in the right people for the job as you're building your team. Joel brings all of his experience of building his own business to the book, including some of the tough lessons he learned the hard way at the outset. So my name is Joel Hughes and I uh, run a, a WordPress development and support company based in, in lovely Wales. We've got clients in the UK and the US and been running since 2001. So that's, uh, that's my baby. And what my company really tries to do is to shine a light through all the kind of the techno mumbo jumbo and to translate those kind of things into, into concepts which people can understand and to take away that fear. So it's, that's the, that's the transparency which we bring into it. So that's the kind of, that's the story behind Glass Mountain. So that's the, uh, that's the idea of, of that. Now, I know your chapter in the book, I thought was so refreshing because I'm a freelancer and, you know, the chapter is called Learning to Change. And you really do dig into your, your journey from a job in a corporate world to going out on your own into business. And I would say the thing that was most poignant to me was this sense that you'd set up with the technical skills, you knew everything you needed to know about websites and development, but what you didn't have was those marketing and networking skills. So how did you overcome that? Through trial and error, which I would not recommend as... <laughs> as the as the as the learning path for most people but no I, I you're right i mean i went into it with all the technical skills but i had to learn the hard way that when people said to me how much does a website cost that the whole arena of pricing is just you know it, it's vast now there, there isn't price is linked to value it's linked to quality it's linked to brand and um you can end up going through a few blind alleys for years where you're pricing too low and you're attracting the wrong kinds of clients and um, i think in my defense, even though I was completely naive, I did learn and I did spot patterns of what was going wrong. And I was able to, after a while, realize that I'm making the same mistakes here. You can't keep on doing that. What is going wrong? And then then when you start to realize that there are whole new tracks of knowledge to learn in terms of sales and marketing and all that kind of stuff, and that it, it, became, it became fascinating to, to look at, read books like The E-Myth and reflect back on how does that affect my business and what bits can I pull from it? And, and I really enjoyed that in terms of running a business and being a freelancer, that element of control, that element of what can I weave into my business, which makes life happier for me and makes happier, happy for my clients. I love that kind of control. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's refreshing. And I think there was a really poignant moment. You know, you said what, the questions you ask yourself now are, am I enjoying this? And if I'm not, is it because I'm not the best person for this job? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, when you're starting off, 
you tend to do everything. You're the chief cook and the bottle washer and, and you feel it. Well, I, I, I can't pay anybody else to do that. So I've got to do it myself. And I can understand that because cash flow is a nightmare when you, when, when you start off. But after a while, you, you do twig that, well, A, some tasks you enjoy more than other ones. So, well, common sense says that if you can offload those tasks to somebody else, then it frees up you to spend on tasks which you a enjoy or b are more profitable. And of course, you know, it's horses for courses. A task which you don't like, somebody else might actually love. And of course, yeah, yeah. You know, what tasks we like change over the lifetime of our career. So, whereas in two thousand and one, I was very much hands on in design and development those areas just don't interest me anymore. I mean, they interest me in, in a sense from I'm interested in what's coming down the line in terms of WordPress or PHP and all that stuff, but I'm not the nuts and bolts programmer. And it is hard to let certain things go and to move on to the next stage. But in a sense, you've got to grow as, as well, you know? And what Joel shares really powerfully is the importance of learning from your mistakes. It is. It can be hard, and making mistakes is part of the journey, and that's a very important thing to do. Because I'm going to change how I go about allowing clients in, and that meant that was a mental shift. Because before you think you're almost just waiting, it's like waiting at the disco, waiting to be picked to dance. No, that's not the way it has to be with the business. You get to decide who you work with. Yeah. When you realise that the wrong kind of clients, they drain you of your time, they drain you of your energy. Uh, and the wrong type of clients that will never refer you to other good clients. When you start to grasp that, you realize that, oh, no, hang on. There are other fantastic people out there who are a very good fit for you. And once you I'm working with those clients, which, I mean, the clients I work with now, they're, they're lovely. They're really, really lovely because you make sure that fit is there from, from day one. So it's always a funny thing when a new client starts to have that conversation that you know, they're asking questions and stuff like that. And I, and I do wonder sometimes, do they realize that I'm scoping them out as much as they are scoping me out? Wise words there from Joel about being really intentional and knowing who it is you are aiming to serve. As if you try and please everyone, you often fall short of the mark and fail to resonate with anyone. Which brings us on to one of my all-time favourite storytellers. Jackie Davis already has her own episode of this podcast, episode 13, where you can hear more of her stories. But for the purposes of the book Enough, she has chosen to share her experience of graduating from Harvard Business School, where her focus was on the money she was going to earn in the future, to seeing that focus shift over time towards doing work that really gave her a greater sense of meaning and fueled her creatively, allowing her to feel truly seen and heard. Leaving her corporate role, she started her first entrepreneurial venture, Roomscape Interiors, which became an award-winning interior design firm, with Jackie making appearances on HGTV's design programme, Decorating Sense, and also being featured in the 2% Women of Colour Design exhibit in the 2008 American Institute of Architects Convention. These days, Jackie is busy building what she calls her third career, where she tells stories to help other women step into their greatness and be seen and heard. Although it's still early days, Jackie has already been featured in a television production called Silver Linings, Stories from the Stage. Here, Jackie shares a bit more of her take on what it means to do work that matters to you. Hi, I'm Jackie Davis, and I live in the United States in Massachusetts. So you begin the chapter with a beautiful moment of graduation day from Harvard Business School. Tell me a bit more about that. That was one of the most... Uh amazing and joyous occasions. And uh, I say in my chapter that we were different from 
business school graduates from other universities because we were out on the field waving dollar bills and it was all about the money and how much money we were going to make uh, as MBAs. When I first started my career, I was really motivated by the money. The more money, the better. If a new job opportunity came up, no matter what it was, if it seemed halfway decent, but it was more money, then I was all for it. And I found that it got to a point where the money wasn't really making me happy because I'd make money, but I would have to tolerate all kinds of isms, racism, sexism, classism in order to make that money. And when I really started to think about it, you know, I realized that it just, it wasn't worth it. You know, it got to be to a point where all the money in the world couldn't make up for how I was feeling emotionally and mentally and physically being in, in that type of environment. And here she shares her advice on some of the things she's learned from making some changes towards finding a greater sense of purpose and meaning in her work. The message that I would give to people about stepping forward and going on with what they want to do, what they really want to do, is to not be afraid. Uh, just take the step. When I decided to leave my company, you know, when I decided to leave corporate, I just stepped out and I did it. I saved money. I was educated. I practiced. I knew it was something that I wanted to do, but I also had to get over the fear. And I remember the very first client I had, I thought, oh my goodness, this is the first client I have. What am I going to do? How is she going to know? And then I realized she didn't know if she was my first client or my 50th client. And so just step out there, embrace what I could do, go forward and, and do the work that I knew I could do and just really, really have the courage. Yeah, and it's so true that uh, for you, Jackie, certainly making meaning is the key to happiness. Well, so far it is. One of the themes that comes out of this book is around transition and how uncomfortable it can feel when we're moving from the comfort and security of one role or identity that we're associated with and into another. For artist Con Christensen, this is something she explores in her chapter, Looking at Looking. Con works with many people who live on the margins of society. And I think it's this proximity to the edges that makes Con's window on the world such a rewarding and fascinating one to look through. My name is Con Christensen. I live in St. Louis, Missouri in the US. I'm an artist primarily. I'm also an educator. When I was making my own work, it was primarily visual, although performance and writing have been part of my portfolio as well. Uh, I mostly make work with other people. I work with a social service agency that serves people who are homeless and in transition from homelessness. And I have a studio in a neighborhood um, that is very much in transition itself. I, I often have trouble telling people, like it, the first thing people say to me is, oh, you're an artist, what do you paint? Uh, and I, I've never been a painter and I only do a little drawing and um, the process of making art has really, and, and sharing that process and, and encouraging that process in other people has really become my art. So your chapter is called Looking at Looking and the subtitle is How Doing It Out of Love Not Fear 
builds bridges, breaches comfort zones and creates connection. And I was really interested in the story you told towards the end of the chapter about an exercise that you ask students of your communications class to do where they design a remote control. So um, in this communications class, I, I don't give quizzes, I don't give tests, and I require that students keep a verbal and visual reflection journal as a way of proving to me that they read, that they thought about, they connected uh, what they're learning with things outside the classroom or within their head or whatever. And so very often, um, in addition to the reading, I give them prompts that that are examples of verbal and visual reflection. I give them a, a really old drawing from a Utney Reader magazine from the early 2000s. And it's a, it's a huge remote control um, with a lot of buttons on it. And the title is um, Remote Dreams of Complete Control. And it was the title that got me. Then when you look closer at the, at the picture of this remote, um, there's nothing about volume or channel changing or recording anything. It's all, all the buttons are labeled with things like money, sex, power, nature, love, fear, uh, war, peace, all those kinds of things. And they're all sort of, you know, different sizes. And the, the remote control is a traditional sort of thing you would recognize. But the assignment that I give is to create ask the students to create a, a remote control of their own that can be any shape, any size. Um, it can be three-dimensional if you want. And I, I say it can have as many or as few buttons on it as you want. And um, it can work in one context. It can work in one relationship. It can work in your whole life. I don't know what you need, what you want, but design it. And the most important part is you're going to draw it or paint it or collage it or whatever. And then you're going to create a set of directions for how this remote works and why and why you need it. Using exercises like this remote control can uh, put people in a place of surprise. Like, you want me to do what? Why would you want me to do that? Oh, well, I can do that. I can find a piece of clip art. I don't have to draw it. Uh, then I can go back in with stickers and I can, you know, create the buttons. And and then she said, oh, she said, draw directions. Okay, well, I'm going to use this in my relationship with my boyfriend. And here's what I want to happen. And here's what I don't want to happen. And I'm going to just write that out. And before you know it, you've got something that is meaningful, that has been, you're, you've done a reflection about a relationship and how you see that relationship in yourself. And and people are surprised, like, oh, my gosh, I did that. Um, we have, uh, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, creating is really, uh, can really be about just about play. And we, we learned, we, we did that when we, when we were small. We imagined things, we drew things, we made things, we got excited about those things. And somehow the school systems and uh, competition with other people and it just uh, sucks the life out of that at some point in our life. And I think it's possible to sort of put it back in piece by piece so that you, th that you think you're discovering it, but what you're doing is you're rediscovering it. Like, oh, I can do this. It was it's always okay. there. Yeah. 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 And I think that's what your, your chapter does so beautifully is highlight some, some of those practical ways you can do that for yourself. 
but also your own journey of that discovery mm -hmm. or rediscovery of you know your essential creative self Beautiful. Mm -hmm. and once you tell your story whether it's in, in written words or drawing or uh, I have another exercise where I ask students to um, describe the 30 the 30 reasons that they have to live and that's the one that nobody ever skips when they do that journal and that nobody ever skips reading somebody else's and once you see something intimate like somebody's 30 reasons to live you cannot unsee that and there is is a relationship that has been moved toward a level of intimacy that you can't unsee how true is that and what a powerful prompt to write down and reflect on your own 30 reasons for living having done it myself i found that's when i moved from enough being a place of scarcity to a place of complete abundance 30 quickly becomes 300 if you let it. Our next contributor, Ula Raff, knows all too well the fleeting and unpredictable nature of life, as the sudden and unexpected death of her husband left her widowed with a young child and a business in debt. Certainly a threshold, but as Ulla explains in her chapter Enough Time, even these unwanted and harrowing events in our lives can become a gift of sorts. Ulla is a wonderfully intuitive woman who has spent many years practicing her skills as a designer. She's the person we have to thank for our gorgeous, gorgeous cover art, but also as a coach for nonviolent communication. Her lived experience that when people feel listened to and they recognize another person's willingness to show interest, that's when the magic happens and it opens up the possibility of successful relationships, exceptional leadership and supportive and productive teams and communities. Well, my name is Ulla Raff. I live in Germany, so English is normally not my usual language. I love doing different things. I would hate it to do always the same things. And uh, I was very lucky to start off um, studying to become a graphic designer, which is a job I really love with all of my heart. And I've done it for years. And then things started becoming difficult with my daughter as she grew up. Our communication wasn't the way I wanted it to be. And um, this set me on the way, finding out more about communication. What works? What doesn't work? Why does it work? Why doesn't it work? And so I gained a whole new area of doing because... When I learned all these things, I thought I would wanted to teach them too, because I was so inspired and so happy to have found these methods that work. And um, I've been teaching since 15 years. And um, now my first profession um, and my second profession come together because I write books and lay out them and design them too and illustrate them too with the things I want people to know or the things I, I think could help people. And so it's, it's using my graphic design and the other competence and putting it together to something new. And that's what really is joyful for me. And here she talks so beautifully about this notion that sometimes even our darkest moments can actually be a gift of sorts. Well, I used to say sometimes you get something like present sounds too nice, a package. You didn't order it, you didn't want it, but you get it nevertheless. And the inside is not always nice. 
More often it is not, but you can't give it back. It's there. And what I found out is sometimes these packages don't look like a present on the first look, but on the long run, they are. Because every change, whatever pain you have to go through, is always accompanied with a new chance or a a door opening. And I can only say it was like that for me. It was a huge, big door opening for me. And I went through, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And for years, I kept saying, if my fate is the same as my husband, I have so-and-so years left, so-and-so years left. Now I'm already way over the age he was when he left. But I think that helped me to value time. And in retrospect, I sometimes think if, if my husband would come back today, he wouldn't know where he is. Since he went, there, has, there, there are so many things that have changed. The internet, the computers, the way we work with each other, the way that we can talk with each other over miles. And this is only 25 years. That's not a long time. But there has happened so, so much. And I like it that I'm part of it. I think it's wonderful. And I'm always, I I say I'm like a cat. I always fall on my four feet. Maybe I'm hurt, but then I stand up and continue. That's, That's the way I am, always have been. And that's good because that helped me a lot. And I asked Ulla to share a little bit more about her process and how she came up with the cover design in the first place. There's not much to know about because I'm constantly generating ideas. And when I was working as a designer only, I used to talk with my clients. An idea popped up and seldom it was completely wrong. Most of the times the client said, oh, I didn't know it would look that way, but it's exactly how I want it to be. And I actually don't know why. I don't know how it came to this. The idea was there. I pinned it down and I loved it. And then I thought, okay, share it. Let's see what the others say. And that's very often that way. It's not much thinking about things, but it just comes. Maybe it's channeled. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's not me. Maybe it's somebody else channeling through me. I don't know. Powerful sentiments there from Ulla. Sometimes creativity needs us just to show up and let go. We stay in Germany for our next writer, Claudia Brose. Although she has widely traveled and has spent much of her time living outside of Germany, Claudia is another of life's quiet disruptors. She has followed her instinct to build her career so that it blends into her life, builds on her interests, and helps her to show the human side of doing business. She has brought all of her insight and marketing experience to the fore with this project and has been an invaluable member of the team. Okay, I'm Claudia. (laughs) I'm German. Um, I think a few more European and I always had the urge to go out in the world and um, I started out going to Japan because I wanted to go somewhere totally different and I always felt attracted to Asian and Japanese culture. So I went to San Francisco because I had a friend there who I knew from Japan and she had started a business there and um, asked me to come over and help her, which was connected to Asian art, culture and artifacts. So I ended up staying 14 years, which was not the plan. But mm-hmm. And the business there, we stopped after a while because of various reasons. And But I always tried to keep the connection between my business work 
project management, marketing, and trying to find this connection um, or connecting link with the cultural world, because that was important to me to connect those areas. So if I do business and marketing, then it should be maybe connected to culture or art. Something which I started in the States, which was this photography academy. And the idea is that I'm bringing together people who in this case are very enthusiastic about photography and bring them together on a very special place, a very special location, which is the winery in um, South Tyrol in Northern Italy and um, with really professional photographers. And so they can learn and exchange and yeah, not only improve their skills, but what um, they bring back to me is actually what I wanted to create is this sense of it's more than photography. It's like really this exchange and it's building from community and being inspired to continue with what you're passionate about. And that same idea is what I want to also create with um, work with attention or paying attention or basically how do we connect work in life or integrate it, which is a beautiful word you say in a better way that makes us fulfilling and more satisfied and happy and also create then events around there to for, for one thing to write about it to talk about it give speeches about it but also create events where also bring again people together who then can inspire each other to um, find their way of um, integrating work in life together. So uh, what are you hoping from having having written this chapter, which is is really powerful because it it does give a sense of what it's what it is to follow those intuitive hits and to have confidence to trust in yourself that you know some of these ideas can find if you just get the little seed of an idea and take it forward, and you find people who join you and collaborate, and then it becomes something much bigger. Mm-hmm. So what are you hoping that readers will take from this? Well, I think actually exactly what you were just saying. So I think what I hope is that they feel faith, that they have faith mm-hmm. and that they can believe in that they can change something by reading all of our chapters in our book. Yeah, that they have the feeling um, or feel encouraged that they're actually doing, doing it. I mean, I think it's one thing to be motivated, but it's not so easy to actually do it, something you want to do or follow your dream. But with our book, um, I hope there are so many um, different uh, perspectives in there that somebody always can find something which uh, they can relate to and then um, find, because also we give a lot of tools and and, um, helpful tips so that they have the feeling I can do it. So it's yeah. not just a dream, but I actually can take this now and maybe really re- um, yeah, realize it. The things I'm dreaming of or always had in the back of my mind, but didn't dare. You know? So this yeah. um, encouragement, I think, and that they have faith and that they understand it is possible you know, to, to do it. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so with that, we come to our final member of this team. Last is by no means least, and Trisha Van Vliet is here to confirm that with her courageous story of overcoming the anxiety and depression that four years ago caused her to attempt to bring her life to an end. As she says herself, during a perfect and near-fatal storm, I discovered a gift called patient courage, with which I'm now rebuilding my life with meaning and purpose. She shares so emotively in her chapter what she now describes as her greatest failure and how it became the start of a journey to find the woman who she learned was loved and cherished beyond belief 
by everyone that mattered. Patient courage has become the label she has given to the way she now approaches life's challenges, and patient courage is now what she teaches other young professionals via her firm, The Wellness CPA PLLC, helping them to create a life-filled career journey and to find the space for love, grace and joy so that they can find balance and protect themselves against the life-threatening circumstances where anxiety and depression can take hold. I am Trisha Van Vliet and I live in the United States and have a beautiful life as mom, wife, daughter, sister, friend, and I'm also a certified professional accountant and I love to make all of those worlds dance together. No, it's a it's an amazingly remarkable story that you shared. But I think the thing that I took away from it most powerfully was that sense of sometimes our darkest moments give us the gift of the resilience to carry on, the the insight, the breaking open of new possibility, which is not a story we often get to hear. Yeah, I think it's often a, a story that we fail to tell. And I am so glad to have had this platform to be able to tell the story. And, you know, it took a long time. And I think it was more about once I understood myself better and was able to create this confidence in myself and eliminate any shame around what I had been through and really focused more on what I've become um, and the not letting one incident define who I am, but also sharing all of the different pieces of my journey that contributed both to um, that incident as well as my growth over the last four years, which that's, that's a big thing. it's kind of speaking from a place of healing rather than, you know, I think it would be so difficult when you were still in the thick of it. But once you get a little bit of distance between you and the event, you can start to move through it and and heal from it. Absolutely. Because I think the the biggest thing for me to overcome is how how did I spend more than half of my life living to protect and nurture my sons to being that person who could attempt to take their own life when you think nothing could destroy them more. But in that moment, that's that's not what it was. But that's what I kept circling back to so many times because I needed that to make sense. And it's really beyond logic. And, um, you know, it's, it's, power of our brains. And that wasn't me. And it wasn't what I would have wished or planned. Um, It was nothing that I wanted. I didn't want to leave my family. I, you know, to this day, I look back, you know, in just, I mean, every single day and in small moments, but also in very big moments. And I catch my breath because I think of what if I hadn't been here to experience that. And so it just reinforces the magnitude, but also magnifies my gratitude for the fact that 
I am here and I'm still writing <laughs> this story um, really could have ended back in 2017. And I can't tell you, Tricia, how grateful we all are that we're here to talk about your greatest failure and that you didn't succeed on that terrible day. <laughs> if others can benefit from all that I've learned over the course of my lifetime, not just from 2017 and not just from the 20-year career prior to that, but just the culmination of this life that has become a source of peace and joy, no matter how messy and busy life becomes, um, because we all go through that. But it's, it is a culmination. I can't separate out any piece of it and still end up where I am today. And I think it's that kind of knowledge, knowing that I have this history, I can lean back on what I've learned, what I know to be true because I've experienced it, as opposed to looking ahead and feeling like I need to have a crystal ball or I have to get tomorrow right when it's today. <laughs> and yeah. um, it is all about today. And I think that when we let go of the tomorrows and the yesterdays, that it just, it makes life so much more meaningful and purposeful, really beautiful. Yeah. The courage it's taken is, yeah, I take my hat off to you, Tricia. I really do. Oh, thank you. I mean, really to the whole community. I mean, and the fact that this came to fruition um, so quickly, it, it was meant to be. I mean, there is no other explanation. Yes, we had a number of wonderful, fearless leaders for the project, but it was just, these are the stories that needed to be told. And, and now they are. Amazing. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I said it whilst we were speaking, but I'll say it again. And I know I speak on behalf of the whole Wright Company community when I say just how grateful we all are that Tricia is still here to shine her light so brightly and share her story to help others. She pays tribute to her two sons and her husband with whom she celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary last year, as Tricia says herself in what must be one of the most beautiful lines of the book, simply because when I couldn't breathe, he did it for both of us. So there you have it. The only chapter we haven't really talked about yet is my own contribution, which is very meta as it's all about the launching of this podcast, a project that's taught me so much about the benefit of having a structure and discipline around any creative practice. There hasn't been a week that's gone by in the year since I started it that I haven't done something to move it forward and to make it better. I just had the amazing news last week that it's hit 5,000 downloads, which is probably 4,999 more than I thought it was going to get this time last year. Definitely a reason to celebrate and a chance to say thanks once again to Chris, my producer over at Between Tracks Media, for all his patience and support. He's been here since the beginning and I'm truly grateful for all his help. But far more important than those numbers or that metric is that this project has given me an opportunity to connect in a meaningful way through the power of storytelling with both my guests and with you, the listeners. Did I tell you already how much I appreciate you? If not, this is another opportunity to do just that. Thank you so much for being here and making it all so worthwhile. You've had a super dose of wisdom this week from not one, but 16 different perspectives. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. But this wouldn't be an episode of Collective Wisdom without a song to add to the playlist. 
My friend Melissa Camilleri liked the phrase, we rise by lifting others so much that she trademarked it. Working together with these wonderful humans to make this book a reality brought that phrase to mind. We have each brought out the best in one another, raised our game and provided support and encouragement that is such an essential part of working together on any project, the part that makes it so much more meaningful and fun. So I've chosen my all-time favourite motivational song to add to the list this week. It's a song by Coldplay from their album Head Full of Dreams, again very apt, and it's called Up and Up. I defy you to listen to it and not feel inspired or motivated. And at the end of the song, you'll hear Chris Martin saying, never give up. So if there's one collective message from this book, it's just that. Taking the first step towards doing work that lights you up or making a start on something that might not work isn't always easy, but we hope that our book will inspire, encourage and support you to do just that. So at the risk of repeating myself, if you're keen to know more about the book, you can head over to enoughthebook.co. The ebook launches this week and you can sign up to get information about how to pre-order the hard copy, which will be coming out later this month. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll leave you with one final poem called Enough of Me by Jackie Davis. My life as a plant. I've seen how people treat other plants, how they fawn and fuss and pray over them. They give them the best fertilizer and water and just the right amount of sunshine. They grow to be big, beautiful plants. And people get so upset if something happens to one. It's as if Mother Nature is against them. They enter them into flower shows and prance around smiling at judges, hoping to get their hands on a ribbon. First place, second place, third place, honorable mention. But they don't mention me. It's as though I'm a bad word. (laughs) And no one looks after me. I look after myself. I'm a survivor. And I can grow in the harshest of conditions, all kinds of environments. You may see me peeking out from between cracks in the sidewalk. Sometimes I push through crevices and walls or grow alongside highways in the brush next to foul-smelling water. Cars right over me, feet trample me, and you can't imagine what dogs do to me. Or can you? And people gasp at how unsightly I am. Unsightly? They want me to believe that I'm unsightly? But that's not what I see. I see long, beautiful green stems that curve and twist and turn and bend, sometimes with vibrant yellow flowers or fluffy tops that blow in the wind. I show the prettiest purple flowers. It all depends on how I feel. And I feel gorgeous. I am gorgeous. I don't need any special light or food or water. I am strong. I am a survivor. At some point, I was introduced deliberately. They said I was beneficial. But when I began to proliferate, they said I was invasive, a nuisance. They pulled me out when they've had enough of me and want to beautify the environment. But I grow back stronger. My roots are deep. Sometimes they spray me with poisonous chemicals, only to find out years later that they have poisoned themselves. I'm called many names, goldenrod, dandelion, amaranth, ragweed. (laughs) Yes, I am a weed, a strong, beautiful weed. And a weed by any other name is still a survivor. 
Might I be an inspiration to you? Thank you so much for listening. There are almost a million podcasts out there to choose from, so I really appreciate you for choosing this one and spending your valuable time with me today. If you found it helpful, I would be truly grateful if you would rate and review it as it helps others to find us. And if you haven't already, you can hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting every episode sent to you. You can find all the resources we talk about and more about my guests in the show notes over at collectivewisdom.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at collectivewisdompod where I'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for new guests or comments that you have. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're interested to know more about how my coaching can help you, you can find more about that on my website at catpreston.com. Thank you so much for joining me.